Good morning. We're very glad y'all are here. We're having some lighting issues, so we're going to use the chandeliers and the cans and, um, I don't know, with me preaching it maybe to your benefit that you can't see my face too much, but we will, uh, we will press on through the major lighting issue, so not a big deal. Um, listen to Psalm 103 with me, and then we'll pray. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not call He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you this morning, and I do so humbly knowing that you're the kind of God we just read about in Psalm 103. You are full of compassion. You know our deepest needs before we voice them. Your greatness is beyond our understanding. Your wisdom is infinite. You don't deal with us according to our sins. You do not repay us for our iniquity, but you give your son a ransom, a sacrifice, a propitiation, atonement for our sins. Lord, it is a sweet privilege that this body of believers gathers this morning being able to be heard by, but more importantly, to hear from the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is great and greatly to be praised. There is no one like you, and we have a relationship with you because of Jesus, so we are very, very privileged this morning. I pray, Lord, as we open the word, that you would guide us according to your will. Speak to us by the work of the Spirit. Lord, I pray specifically this morning for some families in the body. Pray for the Fiesel family. Lord, I pray that you would be enjoyed in the blessing of new life. Well, Anna May. Lord, in the last few weeks, it almost feels like you're showing off a little bit and just how wonderful you are in orchestrating families. According to your word, you choose our heritage. We've gotten to see that in multiple ways pray that you would give the Feasels the rest they need to welcome a new member of their family. Pray for the Wetzels as their babies do in a couple weeks. Lord, I pray for the Wolf family, for Cameron and Amanda. As Amanda's on bed rest for the next few weeks, I pray that you would allow her to keep her sanity. I pray that Cameron would serve her well. I pray that uh, Wren and Callan and Emerson, who haven't been born yet, all three of them would be safe in her womb and that you would watch over them. I'm thankful that you're a God who cares for babies while they're in the womb and even make plans for them before they take their first breath. Lord, I pray for Pastor Matt Beasley at Ridgecrest and just pray for him and his worship, that he's enjoying his walk with you. I pray for his marriage, that he is loving and serving his wife as Christ has shown to the church, and I pray that you would allow him to lead well at Ridgecrest, that he would be a blessing to that people, a servant with a servant heart, eager to encourage them in truth, to lead well, to preach well, to communicate clearly, and to encourage others. Lord, I pray for his children, that he would shepherd them well. Lord, this morning as we talk about conflict, I'm, I'm aware of how 
how little we, we like it. <laughs> um, all morning I've fought against fightings of, I have fought against feelings of futility, pessimism, cynicism. Can we actually respond well in conflict? And I know that you are good. And you can show us things in the word that help us to move forward in truth as an act of worship, obeying our Lord who commands such things. You are so good, Lord. We humble ourselves before you this morning. and We pray each of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're glad you're here. Last week, we began our series titled, A Month of Conflict. We chose the name carefully, and the responses have actually been as we have expected. A month of conflict, question mark. That doesn't sound very appealing. That sounds unpleasant. That's not going to draw much of a crowd. And the one I've heard the most is, I've got enough conflict in my life, I don't need any more. Why a month of conflict? I think this is true for most of us. We generally see conflict as an inconvenience, an unfortunate byproduct and a generally unpleasant occasion. When it rears its head, our default isn't normally, yes, more conflict. This microphone is gonna drive me insane. I'm gonna have conflict with this microphone. So we see it as an inconvenience. But, but like any perspective that we hold and any default mode that we fall into, it, it's our responsibility as Christians to take a step back and say, is this biblical? Does my perspective reflect the character of God? Am I responding to this thing, conflict, as we're talking about this morning, in a way that would show others how great Jesus is? Last week, we considered that conflict is an opportunity to glorify God, and this week, we're going to continue the same line of thinking, that it's an opportunity to glorify God by serving other people. Hear that clearly this morning. It's the point. Conflict is an opportunity to serve others. So the roadmap for the morning is this. We're going to take a look at the church in Corinth, because they had lots of conflict. And we're going to look at the difference between three things, peace-breaking peace faking, and peacemaking. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want you to consider for a moment our creator. He's infinite in wisdom. And I want you to consider that our all-wise creator, in his infinite wisdom, chose to create an entire planet full of people in which no two are exactly alike. Even identical twins have their differences. They don't always get along. In fact, sometimes they fight more than other people fight. But he created, in his infinite wisdom, an entire planet of people of which no two are exactly alike. What does that make up? It makes up an entire planet of differences, different cultures, different perspectives, different upbringings, different goals, different mindsets, different views on parenting, different views on money, different views on politics, a world of differences, and even different beliefs within the same faith. This leads me to believe that conflict is not just an unpleasant inconvenience, but rather that conflict is part of God's brilliant design. You may hear that and be like, eh, I'm not, not so sure about that. But I think conflict may be part of God's brilliant design. And because it's part of his design, I want to encourage you and let you know that some differences in conflicts are because we sin against each other. Some differences in conflicts that we have are because we sin against each other and we sin against God. But I want to note up front that some are just because we're different. It's not always sin. Just because I have this view and you have this view, that doesn't mean you're sinning against me or against God. Some of our conflict arises just because we're different and it's not necessarily sin because God has designed the world in such a manner that no two people are exactly alike. And nowhere in our Bible do we see these conflicting differences play out more clearly than the church in Corinth. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 31, and we're looking at the church in Corinth, which is one of the earlier Christian churches. So from the get-go, the Christian church had some issues 
that we still deal with today. So 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to start in verse 31. This is Paul's encouragement to the church. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, what we're seeing here is the difference between Jew and Gentile. There are no two people in this body of believers at Crosspoint who could possibly be more different than the Jew and Gentile in the Corinthian church. Their whole lives, they have been raised to think, in fact, oppositely about some things. Oppositely, not just slightly different, opposite. To you, this is evil. To me, it is worship. Well, what? We're both Christians. How does that work? They thought oppositely. They were raised differently. And the differences were very distinct. Now, by the power of Christ, they are reclining at the same dinner table together. What happens when you have a big dinner party with family you haven't seen in a while? Is it normally a, an occasion for peace? Probably not. Um, usually there's, there's differences. Uh, here, the differences would be even more drastic than your crazy family at Thanksgiving. What that means is that they bring their differences to the table. That's what they're doing. They're bringing their differences to the table with them. They have unity in Christ, but uniformity is not even an option. A Jew and a Gentile can't look at each other and say, let's be uniform. No, it's not even an option. And that leads me to think that unity is a gift, while uniformity should not even be a goal. Why? Because their differences are vast because of their creator. God has said, in Christ, this new Christian church, I'm going to bring people from every culture, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every background, every different parenting approach, every different worldview, and in Christ, I will bring them to the same table, and they will bring their differences with them. And guess what? Not everybody has to kill each other. There's, there's another option. So they're at the table, and they have their differences. So Paul's particular encouragement in this passage is this. What does it say? Give no offense. Try to please everyone in everything that you do. Don't seek your own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So pay attention first to what Paul is not saying. Paul's not saying, hey, Jew and Gentile, the differences between y'all are so small, can't we just kind of move past them? Paul's not saying that. He's not saying, hey, the differences are so small that they need not be entertained. Rather, Paul is saying that the way you respond to the differences between yourselves could attribute to or even get in the way of someone's salvation. Now, I want to be careful with this because we believe in a sovereign God, right? I was at a camp one time, and I heard a counselor say to some children, you were talking during the invitation, and I bet someone's going to hell because of it. It's like, now come on, really? God's that small? God's sitting there going, oh, they were talking during the invitation. What am I going to do? So I don't want to paint a picture of a small God. That's ridiculous. God is sovereign. Remember, he chooses our heritage for us. He's king of kings, lord of lords. No one unseats him. No one thwarts his plans. He is mighty above all. But pay attention to what Paul says here. Take into account that he says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of the many, that they may be saved. In short, Paul's urging these differing believers to be peacemakers. Peacemakers. A repeated biblical theme is that Christians serve others by being peacemakers. Peace is part of God's character, for he is frequently referred to as the God of peace. Peace is one of the great blessings that God gives to those who follow him. God repeatedly commands his people to seek peace. He repeatedly commands his people to pursue peace. God describes his covenant with us in terms of peace. God taught his people to greet one another and depart from one another with shalom, which means peace. And finally, in Matthew 5, 9, 
God promises to bless the peacemakers. Because God clearly desires peace. Listen closely. Every time you encounter conflict, you will inevitably show what you really think about God. Every time you encounter conflict, you will inevitably show what you think about God. Do you acknowledge God? Do you imitate God? Do you obey God? Do you trust God? There is no real way to serve others while disobeying God. Disobedience to God is always a disservice to other people. So the hope for the church in Corinth, the hope for the church today is that in the midst of our differences and our conflicts that we would aim to serve others by being peacemakers. But what do we know from experience? We know from their experience and we know from our experience that peace doesn't always come easily. You have to work at it. I want to confess before I move forward with this sermon, I, I mentioned it in the prayer, I have battled against thoughts of pessimism and cynicism and just futility all morning because I'm like, really? We're going to be good at being peacemakers? We're going to be good at dealing with conflict? I'm going to introduce here shortly the idea that God gave us the church as a tool to help be resolvers of conflict. I mean, I think that most people probably look at the church community and say, conflict, y'all stink at it. Y'all are horrible at it. Y'all fight with each other. Y'all run each other through the mud. Y'all run away from each other. So as we move forward, I want us to consider the, I know conflict's not easy. I don't think for a moment that I'm gonna sit here and say, be peacemakers. And everyone's gonna say, oh, this whole time I didn't see the peace. It's, it's difficult. You have to work at it. We don't just say something and then all of a sudden it changes. It, it takes work. And we're gonna look at what that work should be. Many times we stumble. Many times we disobey. This morning I want to introduce to you something that we're going to refer to as the slippery slope of conflict. If you're writing in your notes, draw this. A slope. The slippery slope of conflict. And what I want you to picture in your minds is a slope where at the top there's a little bit more footing, but then the further off you get toward the sides, it gets pretty slippery where it's hard to keep your footing. And what I want you to consider is three things. The slippery slope represents three responses that we can have in conflict. The first one is peacemaking. That's the one we're shooting for this morning. Peacemaking, and it's in the middle where there's footing and there's more options. The further you get off to the side, you'll have something called peace breaking. And then the further you get off to the other side, you have something called peace faking. Faking peace and breaking peace, or in the middle, we have the option to make peace. So it's a slippery slope of conflict. Picture that in your heads as we work through this. You have three options when you find yourselves in the midst of conflict, peacemaking, peacemaking, and peace-breaking, and I want to move backwards. So let's start with peace-breaking. Anyone ever been guilty of this? We do not have to go far to look for examples of peace-breaking. We've all been guilty of it. Last week, Ben mentioned that one cause of conflict is limited resources. I have three brothers. We all love peanut butter cookies. When my mom makes peanut butter cookies, they're absolutely perfect. I know that not many things on planet Earth are perfect, but these peanut butter cookies, you, they're like a little more firmer on the outside and in the middle, they're chewy, and then you got this, this sugar that you put on them and then you take the fork and you do that weird little like tic-tac-toe thing on the cookie. We all picture the peanut butter cookie, right? It's, it's fantastic. I'm surprised there's not more response. I mean, they're, they're like the best cookie on planet Earth. So... When we were younger, one day at the Sutton household, we had a problem of limited resources in regards to the peanut butter cookies. There was one left. I went to reach for it. I'm the oldest, I was entitled. My brother rudely pushed me out of the way and grabbed the last peanut butter cookie. He then stood in front of me in sort of a mocking manner and proceeded to move towards slowly eating the last peanut butter cookie. This is when I became guilty of being a peace breaker. I did the whole, <laughs> boom, and I, man, I caught him right in the gut. I acted like I was gonna make peace and walk away. Man, I turned around and boom, I caught him. And I remember it to this day, because you, you shouldn't hit people, but like if it's your brother and he took the last cookie, you remember when you connect like that. And man, I connected. And he was surprised. I was guilty of peace breaking. As he savored his first bite, I punched him right in the gut. 
And I'm, I immediately felt better. I, I gotta admit, I felt good. But the problem was that when I punched him, I knocked the air out of him. That was the point. He inhaled. He gasped for air. <clears throat> and choked on the cookie. He began to panic and turn an odd shade of blue that I've never seen him turn. And once I realized that he was really choking and not being a drama queen, I had to spin my brother around and do a full-on Heimlich maneuver on him. I dislodged the cookie, and I told him that I had just saved his life even though he stole the last peanut butter cookie. <laughs> to which he responded, no, you didn't. You almost killed me. So the result of my peace breaking was he almost died. We actually ended up getting into a bigger argument and worst of all, nobody actually got the last peanut butter cookie because when it landed on the floor, it was not appealing to either of us anymore. So while the example is a little bit humorous, the reality is that peace breaking can be very damaging. Peace breaking can be very damaging. For some of you, this is your default mode. And I really want you to listen closely. Don't don't disregard the possibility that you might be a peacemaker by a peacebreaker by default. When someone else's agenda or someone else's opinion or someone else's plan or someone else's desire does not match up with yours, you go on the attack. These peacebreaking attack responses could include verbal assault, slander, gossip, the cold shoulder, physical assault, litigation, and even the most extreme form, murder. It's because you're not being a peacemaker. You're going on the attack, you're peace breaking. Attack responses are used by people who are more interested in winning a conflict than preserving a relationship. I, I, I wanna ask, is this you? As I'm describing that, are, are you convicted at all? Do you get angry and fight? Do you get angry and fight? Is this your default mode where it's like, you know, oh, you differ? Okay, well, let's go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I'm not stepping back. There's no possible way I'm gonna submit to that. I'm immediately gonna insert whatever I feel is right here and I'm not backing down. Is that, is that your default mode? Peace breaking. If the choice is fight or flight or make peace, these are the people who would, who would choose to just stand and fight. I'm angry and I'm not backing down. Sadly, many churches are filled with peace breakers pride-filled, unteachable, and set in their own ways, these people can cause much division in their churches and in their communities. Turn to 1 John 3.15 with me. 1 John 3.15 says this. Three verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Hello. Can I get your attention? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We stand guilty of murder in God's eyes when we harbor anger or contempt in our hearts towards others. That means that attack responses always make conflict worse. Always. Turn over to Acts 6. We'll see some attack responses in Acts chapter six. Stephen, we're gonna start in verse eight. Try to, try to find out what the attack responses are in, in this passage of scripture and, and ask yourself, why did they do that? Why did they attack? Acts six, chapter eight. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. That's good. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. It's a disagreement. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, false witnesses, lies, and slander, all because they disagreed with what Stephen was saying. Go back to the church in Corinth, Jew and Gentile sitting at the same table. This would be like, an attack response would be like the Jew wanting to punish the Gentile for not seeing things the way they see them, or the Gentile wanting to punish the Jew because their convictions differed. They may look across the table and verbally assault one another or ridicule one another or accuse one another for moving in a way contrary to what seemed right in their own minds. Sometimes these attack responses are very upfront and rude and abrupt. Sometimes they're a little more subtle. Oh, you're gonna eat that? Thought you loved Jesus. Oh, you drive a foreign car? Hmm, thought you were a Christian. Oh, you don't homeschool? They can be subtle. They can be bold and in your face. We, I mean, think about the things we can fight over. I mean, really, what we drive, our political stances, our view on parenting, our view on school, our view on the kind of worship that happens corporately, what instrumentation is used. We, we, can, we have so many different perspectives, and we can go on attack mode and just fire arrows at people, just throw rocks at them, just be rude. Attack responses always make the conflict worse. The other side of the slope, remember, we've got the slope of peacemaking and then you get off to the side, it's peacebreaking. The other side is peace faking. Instead of attack responses, those guilty of peace faking will default to escape responses. So in fight or flight, these are the ones who run away. These escape responses can come in the form of denial, flight, or even suicide. People tend to use these responses when they're more interested in avoiding conflict than in resolving it and preserving the relationship. And I would ask, is that you? Are you more interested in avoiding conflict at all costs than preserving that relationship? Because what I want you to see, a lot of times people who are, are peace fakers, they think what they're doing is noble. These guys are are. are offending each other and they're being rude and they're breaking peace and I'll have nothing to do with it and then you run away. But what I want you to see that a peace faker is accomplishing the same thing that the peacebreaker is accomplishing. You may be trying to be noble but you're still leaving the conflict unresolved. An unresolved conflict is a bad thing. Just to run away from it is not resolving it. You, you leave it in the same state as the one who was breaking peace. Usually a church that is dominated by peace breakers is a church that is eventually abandoned by peace fakers. Our community is plagued by church splits. Our community is plagued by church hopping. The practice of people becoming disgruntled and leaving their church home to go find a new home is so common that at Crosspoint, when we meet with someone who is interested in membership, we always ask, did you leave your last church well? Usually it's like, what? Aren't you glad I'm here? Did I miss something? But the reason we ask that is because you just leave unresolved conflict in so many places and you take some things with you, which we'll talk about in a moment. But we always ask that question, did you leave your last church well? If you decide you want to join Crosspoint, that's going to be one of the questions. Did you leave well? Or do you have a, a, a pattern of unresolved conflict? So remember, I said it comes in the form of denial, flight, and suicide. Denial is an escape response that pretends like a problem does not exist. Unfortunately, that does not make the problem go away. If, I, if there's a fire over here, which there's not, don't, don't panic, but if there was a fire in the back corner, and I, I'm like, oh, I got a sermon to preach, I just, we'll, we'll, we'll deny it. We'll pretend it doesn't exist. There's still a fire. And what happens? Well, Usually, it only provides temporary relief while actually making the problem itself worse. It spreads like an acid. It's corrosive. Flight is another way of describing running away from your problems. 
People can do this in a variety of ways. Think about all the ways we can, we can be guilty of flight, peace faking, quitting your job. Now, as I say these, some of you may have had great reason to quit a job. Don't say, oh, I condemn you for ever quitting a job. But consider, what are your reasons behind it? So this flight can come in the form of quitting a job, leaving your church, pulling away from a friendship, or filing for divorce. In the church in Corinth, this would be like the Jews looking at the Gentiles and then looking back at themselves and saying, this is never going to work. Let's leave. But what would have happened to the first Christian church if that was the, was the case? This is never going to work. Let's, let's get out of here. Let's quit wasting our time on something that's futile. In 1 Samuel 19, Saul tries to kill David. David runs away. Was that the end of the story? No. We know that that was not the end of the story. That did not solve the problem or resolve the conflict. When we run away from a problem, one of the things that we often take with us is bitterness. When we run away from a problem, one of the things we often take with us is bitterness. Turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. When you run away, you don't leave everything behind. And one of the things we most often carry with us that's just embedded and ingrained in thinking is bitterness. Look at verse 15 in chapter 12 of Hebrews. It almost sounds like he's addressing those who are called to be peacemakers. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. You hear what happens there? A root of bitterness springs up, it causes trouble, and, and who becomes defiled? Many. According to James chapter 4, harmful conflict is usually triggered by unmet desires. It says this, don't turn there, but listen. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. So we have conflict from unmet desires, and if the conflict is never resolved because we simply run away from it, those unmet desires take deep root and they turn into bitterness, according to Hebrews. And according to Hebrews, bitterness is not the kind of thing that you can keep on the down low. A lot of times we think we can. No one will know. I'll just keep it bottled up but you cannot keep bitterness on the down low. By design, God says, it will spring up, it will cause trouble, and it will defile many. It's not okay. So when you leave a church or a job or a marriage or a friendship without reconciling your conflicts, you do a disservice to those in your future by carrying defiling bitterness into your new relationships. Sometimes it gets even worse. Sometimes the conflict and the lack of reconciliation and the bitterness and the hopelessness piles on and piles on and it feels so heavy and it feels like such a burden that it leads some people to look for relief in suicide. This is the most extreme form of the escape responses. Tragically, suicide has actually become the third leading cause of death among adolescents partly because so many children have never learned how to deal with conflict constructively. If you have struggled with thoughts of suicide, I want to encourage you with a truth from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 this morning. Listen to what God says to you. No temptation or trial has seized you except what is common to a man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Remember that word bear because we're going to come back to it. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It's worth noting that on that slippery slope of conflict, the two extremes of peace faking and peace breaking both result in death. Murder or suicide. The two extremes both result in death. Unresolved conflict is always very costly. We, as a Christian people, cannot continue to be okay with unresolved conflict. It is always very, very costly. 
This is why God calls the church to be peacemakers. Turn to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Before we read, I want to make something very, 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 very clear. One of the struggles I've had in preparing the sermon is it has felt very teachy. Let me give you this slope. I was going to put a picture up, and I was like, I don't want a picture behind me while I'm trying to preach the word. But it's felt teachy. We've got these facts and these concepts and these realities. But I want, them to see, I want us to see them as biblically sound, biblically um, real. But before we read, I want to make something very clear, and it's this. The key to changing the way that we deal with conflict is the gospel. It's not an acronym. It's not a program. It's not something that is quippy or, or cute. The key to, the, to changing the way that we deal with conflict, which this is a community of believers that desperately needs to change the way that we often deal with conflict. The key to that is the gospel. The key to it is the good news that God made peace with us and between us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and give us new life through his resurrection. That's the key to this, applying what's true about Jesus. So look at what it says and how it explains it in Colossians 3.12 through 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What do we put on? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. There's that word bear, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Notice it doesn't include forgiveness as like one of many options. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Do you realize the standard that is being set for us right there? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. God has given us an incredibly high standard to live up to when we have the opportunity to forgive someone. And there's one word in particular I want to I go back to. I've mentioned it twice now. I want to key in on it for a moment, and it's the word bearing. Bearing. Bear with one another. I believe this is key if you hope to serve others through conflict. First, I don't think that we understand this or we're very good at it. Personally, I think we're very good at fighting with each other. I think we're very skilled at running away from our problems. But bearing with one another is not something that the church in general is characterized by. Go to someone who's unbelieving in this community and say, hey, what's the, what's the church characterized by? They're not going to say, oh, they, they bear with one another. It almost seems comical, sad, bearing with one another. In Greek, the word bearing is translated anekomai, and it means to hold oneself up against, to put up with to bear with, to endure, to forbear, and even to suffer. Now, from a worldly perspective, that sounds miserable, right? From a worldly perspective, it could come off as a bit negative, as though you have no other option, but as the phrase goes, just grin and bear it. Stuck. Can't go anywhere, just bear with it. That's a worldly perspective. What about a biblical perspective? From a biblical perspective, this is Christ-likeness. I want you to see that this is Christ-likeness. Bearing with one another is Christ-likeness. It displays the very nature of our God. It says, even though you may not deserve it, or even though I may feel like you don't deserve it, I will stand next to you and stick with you and exercise mercy and long-suffering when what maybe I feel like you really deserve is punishment. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to bear with you. It exercises and shows and displays the character of Christ. Has he bared with you? Absolutely. In the original language, this bearing with one another is described as holding up against a thing and not running away. Bearing with it. There's two words that are, they just they hit me so hard when I realized what two words made up this bearing. The two words that combine to make this word are this, to have and to hold. Does that sound familiar? Those are the two original Greek words that make up anekomai, to have 
and to hold. Does that sound familiar? Part of our traditional wedding vows are made up from the biblical concept of bearing with one another. The covenant of marriage reflects the covenant that exists between Christ and the church. That's why the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. One reflects the other. So when you sit up there and you say, to have and to hold, it's not some silly romantic comedy like to have and to hold. It's saying, you know what? I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. Publicly, as an expression of my love to God and my love for you, I will bear with you. And I hope you return the favor and bear with me. Those are the vows you're making when you say to have and to hold. This is more than a feeling. This is an act of the will. Before you were a Christian, you had two options, fight or flight, win or run away. But those who have new life in Christ, we have a better option. Bear with one another. Church, bear with one another. Married people, bear with one another. People who are in friendships with other people, bear with one another. In every conflict, make the decisive action to stand and bear through whatever you have to bear through for the purpose of forgiving and being reconciled. It is saying, my God spared no expense in achieving reconciliation. And you know what? I won't either. Doesn't mean it's easy, but I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna spare expense there. Rather than fighting with you, rather than running away from you, I will bear with you, and I hope you will bear with me. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in you may forgive you your trespasses. Luke 6.28 says, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you. Having an attitude of forgiveness is unconditional and it is a commitment that you make to God. We don't, we don't approach it as though it's one of many options. And in a world filled with people who hold grudges and feel entitled to everything under the sun, it is a breath of fresh air to see someone who is compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, eager to forgive, and bear with other people. So if I'm a peace breaker, if I'm breaking peace, I'm focusing on you. I'm in attack mode and I'm coming after you. If I'm faking peace, I'm a peace faker, I'm focusing on me and I want to avoid that conflict at all costs and I'm running away. But when you begin to make the decision to be a peacemaker, you're focusing on us. I'm focusing on us. I want to make sure this relationship continues because we're representing Christ. Overlooking. It's crazy. I want you to know that the first option you have in peacemaking is to overlook an offense. Does that hit anyone weird? I was at a conference in Maryland. We were going through a lot of training to, to be conciliators and peacemakers. And they said, you know what the first uh, option is in, in peacemaking is, is overlooking an offense. And I want to confess to y'all that as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, I about fell out of my chair. I was like, huh. You mean I can just overlook some stuff? I don't have to punish everybody for every injustice, injustice that I see. That's hard to say. But I don't have to punish them. I can overlook some things. Overlooking an offense. I would ask, when is the last time that you overlooked an offense? Because sometimes, if you forget that your God is merciful, you get wrapped up, in the fact that he is, he's perfectly just and, and you forget the compassion, then you will not ever overlook an offense. There has to be a balance. As a believer, this is an option that you have. Now, not every offense can be overlooked. We're talking about the less slippery part of the slope where we can make peace. That first option is overlooking an offense. Not every offense can be overlooked, but many of them can be. Many of them. Proverbs 19.11 says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offense. Just overlook it. Oh, well, that was rude. Let's move on. I can't believe they said that. Okay, well, they're having a bad day. Let's move forward. Overlooking, overlooking an offense. If this is something you never do, you are likely a person who keeps a record of wrongs. If you never overlook an offense, you are likely a person who keeps what the Bible calls as a record of wrongs. 
According to our Bible, this is unloving. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. So the encouragement is to serve others by refusing to keep such a record. In fact, it may be beneficial for some of you to go home today, pull out your record of wrongs, and consider how many things on that list can simply be overlooked. Go think through the things you're carrying with you, the unresolved conflict that is on your record of wrongs, and think, what on this list can I just flat out, as a believer who has been forgiven much, what can I overlook? And whatever you cannot overlook, you must aim towards reconciliation. That's the second option that we have in peacemaking as believers. Matthew 5, 23 through 24 says that if your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled. And it's addressing those who are in the middle of worship. Oh, when you come to worship, you're bringing your offering, sacrifice of praise. Hey, before we continue in that, if your brother has something against you, leave that and go be reconciled. Worship is important. But guess, guess how important reconciliation is? God actually says, go and be reconciled and then come back. Reconciliation. This usually happens through the process of confession and repentance. Your next option in peacemaking is, is what's called negotiation. It's biblical. When a conflict, when in a conflict, there are personal issues and material issues. This means I've asked first, can I overlook this offense? If you can't and you got things you need to work through, then you go to aim to be reconciled. You confess your sins. You take the log out of your eye and you go to your brother as an act of love. And you work through, can we be reconciled? And if we've tried to do that together and we've worked through, you know what? We still are at odds. I'm still here and you're still here. Then you go to what's called negotiation. And you say, is there any middle ground that we can reach so that we don't continue being at odds with each other and misrepresenting our Lord? Turn to Philippians 2. Just a little bit to the left from Colossians where you were previously. Philippians 2.4 says this. I hope you're beginning to see that the Christian's response to conflict is completely different than the worldly response. Philippians 2.4 says this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You're not allowed to look only to your own interests as a Christian. You are required in grace, in love, in mercy to look to the interests of other people. What does this mean? This means that there are times when you, as a peacemaking believer, are called to put the interests of others before your own interests. That means, you know what? I'm here on this issue. You're here on this issue. And there may be times where God calls me to move more in your direction than you move in mine because I'm called as a believer to put your interests before my own. That doesn't mean I'm gonna step off into sin. That doesn't mean I'm going to embrace some filth or some wicked view but it does mean that I will put your interests before my own because that's what Christ did for me. So are those your only three options? All three of those options are biblical possibilities in the form of personal peacemaking. But what I want y'all to see this morning is that the Bible does not stop there. If those options are exhausted, if you have said, can I overlook it? Are we reconciled? We're still negotiating things. We're still at a standstill. Is that all I have? I want you to know that if those options are exhausted and there's still conflict to work through, God, in his wisdom, provides the church to assist in peacemaking. Some of y'all may have a church background where you laugh inwardly at that. That's been my fear all morning, is that when I say the words, God, in his wisdom, has provided the church to assist in peacemaking, that you'd be like, ha, ha really the church oh yeah that's their reputation hold on I have a problem where am I going to go oh how about the church my dream as a pastor in this community is that that would change that that would be a reality because that's what it says biblically it says biblically that God provides the church to assist others in making peace and my hope is it may not happen next year it may not happen 10 years from now it may be my great grandkids doing the work but I hope that at some point we could get to a point where this community would say man we have a problem who here knows how to work through conflict well I hear the church is good at that I believe that that can happen and it won't happen outside of messages like this and realities and truths biblically like this we have to walk according to the truth and what it says is this 
First, it can happen in the form of mediation. Turn to Matthew 18. Now, for some of you, Matthew 18 is a bad word and number. Like Romans 9 and John 6, you skip over them. It's not okay. We don't skip over any parts of our Bible. And when we do, we misrepresent God. We sit and we bear and we dig and we try to understand what it means. And in Matthew 18, verse 16, it says this. If he will not listen to you, take one or two others along. That is called mediation. Either I'm not listening to you, or you're not listening to me, or we would both agree that we are not listening to each other. You know what? God provides the church to assist us in peacemaking. Let's bring along someone else to help us work through whatever we need to work through. Mediation. If that does not resolve the conflict, the Bible further offers arbitration. Don't turn there, but listen to what 1 Corinthians 6, 4 says. I love the wording here. 1 Corinthians 6, 4. Remember, this is the church in Corinth, Jew and Gentile. Very, very different. If you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Who are we going to appoint as judges? Even men in little account, of little account in the church. What does that mean? This form of peacemaking says that even though we are still at odds with one another, rather than fighting you by dragging you into court, I would rather have the church help us by making a decision for us. Arbitration is the point where you say, we've worked, we've worked, we've worked, we're still at odds, we still don't see eye to eye, and you know what? I'm gonna trust the church and the leadership there to make a decision for us. It's a vulnerable spot for people who are at odds with each other because they're saying, you know what, I'm gonna give up my ability to make the decision and, to, and, to play, and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna say, you know what, church? I'm going to trust y'all to make a decision for us. This is the case. This is where we're at. And I'm going to trust that y'all will appoint men to help us render a judgment in this case. It's better than taking a fellow Christian to court. And then finally, this final step of peacemaking is accountability. Accountability. Again, Matthew 18. Look at the next verse, 17. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If a person who professes to be a Christian wanders from the Lord, refusing to be reconciled and do what is right, Jesus commands the church leaders to lovingly intervene to hold him or her accountable to Scripture and to promote repentance, justice, and forgiveness. That's your last step in reconciliation. See, when you look at that slope, you see peacemaking and then you see peacemaking and peacebreaking. You don't get to the accountability part and say, well, it didn't work. Let's attack them. You can't do that. You, you can't get to the overlooking apart over here and say, I can't overlook that. Let's just ignore it and act like it didn't happen and, and be in denial. That's different than overlooking. Those are your options. You overlook, you run that course biblically, or you hold them accountable. And that is such an important step. And this is I want you all to see that this means that a church that abandons church discipline is a church that has done a huge disservice to itself by refusing to serve each other at an extremely critical point in peacemaking. Someone has set themselves against the Lord. Someone has set themselves against what is true. And if you abandon church discipline, you abandon one of the most beautiful tools that the Lord in his wisdom has given us to help people work through conflict and be reconciled, and it is a disservice to the church. The point of the message today is conflict is a means to serve other people. You cannot serve others by abandoning church discipline. In closing, I'd ask you to turn to Romans 12, because it's awesome. Romans 12, verse 20. This is one of those verses that growing up, I did not understand it. I thought it sounded neat, I didn't get it. <coughs> Romans 12, verse 20 says this. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. What? Who would do that? The church. That's who's supposed to do that. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
In his closing statements of his book, Ken Sandy in The Peacemaker says, here is the ultimate weapon, deliberate, focused love. Not mushy, emotional, gooey, I love you, I'm so sorry. Deliberate, focused, specific love. How does that play out? Instead of reacting spitefully to those who mistreat you or to those who disagree with you, Jesus wants you to discern their deepest needs and do all you can to meet those needs. Oh my goodness, what it would be like if church people did that. You disagree with me. You were rude to me. You slandered me. You ran me through the mud. I'm gonna sit and I'm gonna try to figure out what your deepest needs are and I'm gonna do my gut level best to meet those needs. That is absolutely remarkable. If we had a community of people doing that, this community would not be able to ignore it. Why? Look at what it says. In this book, he closes by saying, Jesus wants you to discern their deepest needs and do all you can to meet those needs. Ancient armies often use burning coals to fend off attackers. You can imagine, I'm attacking, I'm attacking, I'm attacking. Burning coals cannot ignore the burning coals. The burning coals will eventually do something one burning coal may not. Hundreds of burning coals. I'm stopping. Because not only am I catching on fire, but everything around me is catching on fire. And that's a bad spot to be in. That's why it was an effective use of, of defense. Ancient armies often use burning coals to fend off attacker, attackers. So what is Paul indicating in Romans? Paul is indicating the irresistible power of deliberate and focused love. No soldier, no matter how awesome and bad he was, could resist the weapon of burning coals for long. It would eventually overcome even the more determined attacker. Love has the same irresistible power. Look, I'm not a hippie, all right? I'm not sitting here saying, man, love, just gooey, gooey, emotional, nonsensible love. It's, it's what makes the world go round. No. I'm talking about deliberate and focused love that puts the interests of others before your own interests, that says, I'm not here to fight you and win and make you look stupid. I'm not here to run away from you and leave our conflict unresolved. What I want to do is deliberately and, and intentionally focus on loving you. I want to, in our conflicts, if I'm wronged, whether it is sin, whether it's a difference of opinion, what I want to do is I want to try to discern what you need the most, and I want to try to, at my gut level best, come in and provide that for you. That would be so remarkable if the Christian community did that. Why would we do that? It's because it's what God tells us to do. It's not just some odd concept. It's not some hippie mentality. It's not some pacifist thing either. You are resolving conflict in doing so. Do not miss that God's design is certainly different than what we would default to. And do not miss that God's design is brilliant. <laughs> We have sweet opportunity to serve others in the midst of conflict. We have sweet opportunity to come in low and do all we can to resolve conflict by serving other people right in the middle of it. We will have differences. When church people and non-church people and the mixture of church and non-church people come together and there's differences, don't go, I can't believe that. Realize that there's, God's design was that no two people are exactly alike. So we have much opportunity to put his glory on display to show how he's been towards us as we love others by looking to their interests and not only our own, our own interests and to by aiming to serve them in the conflict rather than winning or running away. Let's pray. Lord, I see what the Bible says and I, I want it so badly in my own life, I have failed miserably. Lord, I see what the word says and I see your wisdom coming out and I see the spirit giving discernment and understanding and I think how wonderful would it be if we did this, if we acted like this, if we lived like this, if we moved like this, if we responded like this. Lord, my prayer is that you would empower this body of believers to do just that. It's not futile. We can't be cynical. We can't be pessimists. 
We can't say, it is what it is, we'll never change. Lord, I believe by the power of Christ, according to the truth of the gospel and by the work of the Spirit, that people can actually hear this message and leave here today and be peacemakers. I believe that we have been equipped with goods to do so. Lord, you are so good. We are surrounded by people in need. This week alone, I've seen people who need food, who need hope, who need a home for their child, who need love, who need encouragement, who need someone to exercise patience towards them. In my own children, I've seen a need for a daddy who can overlook an offense sometimes. Lord, we will always be imbalanced if we do not stay in step with the Spirit. So my prayer is that this people would stay in step with the Spirit, humble ourselves before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and ask to truly be used by you as you see fit, serving others and putting their interests before our own. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As we take the supper this morning, I think it's fitting to ask a few questions. One, is there any way that you're faking peace? If so, pray to the Lord, repent, and make a point today to stop. Go and be reconciled. Two, while we pass out the supper, consider, is there any way that I'm breaking peace, that I'm setting myself against others for the sake of winning an argument and not preserving the relationship? Am I doing that? If so, pray, repent, and ask the Lord to help you to stop doing that and to be a peacemaker. Consider the opportunities that you have in your own life. Some of you may need to actually leave here and go and be reconciled before you continue in worship. If that's the case, that's fine. Go and be reconciled. No one will be offended at you leaving early. It would be a step of obedience for, for some. So as we pass out the supper, consider, am I peace faking, am I peace breaking, and in what ways do I need to confess my sin, repent, and move forward in faithful peacemaking? Christ says, as often as you take this supper, do so in remembrance of me. And so what we're remembering is that in Christ, we've been reconciled to God, and we have been reconciled to each other because he chose to, to bear with us and he chose to offer himself and put himself, uh, not first, but, but to suffer for our sins, to, willing, to be willing to die on a cross, to humble himself, as it says in Philippians, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when we remember Christ and we take this, that's what we're remembering. He has made peace in a way that we could not have done on our own. Take and eat. Take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, your body broken and your blood given as an atonement. Achieving for us what we could not achieve, Lord, we take the supper humbly. And I pray that in doing, doing so, we, we are encouraged to go and live in a Christ-like manner toward others, seeing that conflict is an opportunity to serve them. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray that we would do so humbly, giving wholeheartedly, not begrudgingly, in response to how great you are. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you all this morning that responding um, in the manner that the word has said be encouraged that it can have some immediate results. I mean, <laughs> there's so many things that we preach and we teach and we communicate where it's like, well, here we continue with the inefficient work of ministry and, um, you know, maybe it'll change someday and people will slowly move in Christ-likeness. But I think we're so bad at this that when someone sees you aiming to be a peacemaker and overlook offenses, put others before you, I think the results could be immediate. Where, and I can't say that very often about much of anything from the pulpit. Like this mic, I'm going to kill this. I'm going to run it over with my car when this is over. That's how I'm going to reconcile the problem. Um, uh, but 
I think people will take note of that. I was reading a, a story this week about a litigation process that had gone and there were attorneys, attorneys involved and one of the men was a Christian and finally in the process of litigation, the Holy Spirit had moved him through prayer and he said, you know what? I'm just gonna forgive the debt. I'm not gonna make, I'm not gonna punish him and I'm not gonna require him to pay me. So this is over because I'm gonna forgive the debt. And he did it because he's a Christian and it finished and it was, everyone was surprised and one of the, one of the attorneys um, communicated afterwards, he said, huh, well that's the first time I've ever seen someone's faith cost them anything. That's the first time I've ever seen someone's faith cost them anything. It's, it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be such a surprise, it shouldn't be like that. So I wanna encourage y'all to immediately try to apply these realities and serve others in conflict. Let's, uh, let's stand and we'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we come to you now and we are thankful uh, for how good you are and how, as we read in Psalm 103, that you, you do not treat us according to our sins and our iniquities, but you are full of compassion. And in Christ, we've been reconciled to you and we didn't deserve it. Uh, we're in awe of you this morning. And I pray that as we leave here, our worship of you would overflow into the way that we treat others. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good day. We'll